right, and as you're seated, open up your Bibles again to Psalm 51, uh, if you would. And, um, you know, Psalm 51 is a familiar psalm to many of us. Uh, we know it a lot better than probably a lot of different um, psalms that are found in the Word of God. It was written by David, by King David. And, uh, of course, we know David, most of all, by being identified by God himself as a man after God's own heart. But we also know that even though he was identified as a man after God's own heart, he also, in one particular time in his life, fell into some very serious, some very dark sin in his life. He committed adultery against Bathsheba, and he also committed murder against uh, her husband in order to try to cover up his sin with Bathsheba instead of confessing it and coming clean. He covered it up by by having his commanders descend uh, Uriah on the battlefield and at the very front lines, and then he, he instructed them that once he was out there in the thick of the battle for all of them to withdraw and to leave him there and to allow him to die at the sword of the enemy. And so we see that this was very serious sin um, in David's life uh, because he, was adult, he, was, he, was, he had committed adultery and premeditated murder. And so what we find in this psalm, Psalm 51, is we, we find uh, immediately after he was confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan. Uh, David thought that he was going to get away with his sin. He began to think, okay, maybe I'll just go along with my life. But here's the deal. We may try to forget about our sin, but God does not. So God confronted him by sending the prophet Nathan to him and exposing his sin and drawing him back in repentance to him. And so this Psalm 51 is a, is a prayer, David's prayer, of what he was feeling, what was, he was thinking, and what he was desiring uh, the moment after he began to understand just how sinful he was. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of work through uh, the first 13 verses of, of this psalm. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at four different elements, primary elements that are found here within this chapter um, and really focusing on the very last one. But I think by going through the rest of the psalm, it builds and it develops a true understanding of what it is, uh, of why that fourth element is so uh, important to us and, and what it has to say to us in light of all that we've been learning this month. So what I want to do is draw your attention to verse 1. And what we're going to do is we're going to see, first of all, the first element of his prayer is this, is that it was a prayer for forgiveness. It was a prayer for forgiveness. Notice in verse 1, if you will, in, in your Bibles. He says, have mercy on me, O God. Now, this is interesting because he begins his prayer the same exact way he did over in Psalm 67 last week. He begins by asking God to give him not what he deserves, but for God to give him what he knows that he is undeserving of. And when he comes, he's not demanding, he's requesting, but not based on his own goodness, but rather he's asking based on the goodness of God. And we see that with the next two phrases. He talks about two qualities of God that he's basing this request upon. First of all, he says, he says have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. When he says the steadfast love, in essence what he's saying is, you know what, God's love is unlike a lot of our love. You know, your love and my love is kind of fickle, isn't it? Fickle and fleeting. Uh, it's kind of selfish oftentimes. And the reason for that is, is oftentimes we will love those who love us uh, we will love those who are good to us and do something good for us. But if they're not going to love us and return our love, and if they're not going to do good things towards us, then guess what? I don't have time to love that person. And that is not the type of biblical love that God wants for us. 
He wants us to share an agape love, the type of love that God has for us, where we love him, where, where we love each other unconditionally because he loves us that same way. And so what he does is when he comes and makes his request to God, he bases it on God's steadfast love and his abundant mercy. Now that phrase abundant mercy means this. If you're looking at the word of God, right? If you're looking at the word of God, right? If you're looking at the word of God, I'll say it a third time, amen, all right? If you're looking at the word of God, abundant mercy, what it literally means is this. It literally means, he's talking about a deep-seated feeling that God has for him, specifically as a child of God. So what he says, he says, God, I'm coming to you, I'm making my request, please don't give me what I deserve, give me what I don't deserve. And I'm basing this on your incredible, unconditional love for me, your love that loves me, whether I've obeyed you or whether I haven't obeyed you. You love me the same. That's the miracle of his love. And and because of your affection, your special affection that you have for me as your child, then he makes the request. He says in three lines, he says, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. All three sentences, he's asking the same exact thing. He says, God, relieve me from the burden of my sin. Take my sin away. Oh, God, I'm asking you to forgive me. Now, what we notice here is this. This is exactly how we approach God when we first get saved, isn't it? When God first appears and illuminates that we're sinners, we come to him and we say, God, I'm coming to you not asking for you to give me what I deserve, but give me what I don't deserve to extend grace to me. And God, not based on my goodness, but your goodness, dear Jesus, save me, forgive me of my sin, right? And when we talk about that as unbelievers, when we first come to him, we're just talking about sin in general because we're overwhelmed by that sin. But as believers, we're overwhelmed oftentimes when the Holy Spirit comes You know it, don't you, as a believer? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, don't you know those times when you have been in sin and he comes and he illuminates that sin in you and you are broken to your very core at that moment and it's not a bunch of sins, it's that specific sin that he's illuminated inside of your life. And what do we do? The same thing. God, according to your grace, will you forgive me? And so his prayer begins with a prayer for forgiveness. Uh, then he moves on next, and he moves to a section that we'll entitle the prayer of confession. He asks for either it's a prayer for forgiveness or then a prayer of confession. Now, notice if we will in verse 3. There's going to be three parts of his confession. And what I mean by confession is he verbally, he, oral, he, he oralizes his sin. He uses his word, words to identify that he indeed is a sinner. He admits it, okay? And the first thing that he does under his confession is he clearly recognized what his sin was. In verse 3, he says, for I know my transgressions. So he's saying, I identify how it is that I have sinned, okay? It's not like our prayers at the end of the week, you know, at the night you're just trying to go to bed and you sit there and say, God, I know I probably did a lot of bad things. Just forgive me of all of them, right? That's not the best way to pray. He comes and he prays and he says, I know exactly what it is that I did. And so what he's doing is he's taking responsibility. He's saying, I failed. It's not like um, when I was a little child, and this seems to be passed on from generation to generation, if you know what I'm talking about, when my parents would sit there and say, Michael, and I knew that I was, you you know that, right? Maybe they didn't call you Michael, but whatever your name is, and uh, that might have been strange if they called you Michael, right? But Michael, and I sit there and I go, what? What'd I do, right? And they go, you know very well what you did. You, got, you guys with me? And then all of a sudden, you're like, oh, man, they got me, all right? That's trying to expose the sin or hide the sin. 
but what he's doing is he's like, God, I'm not trying. I know very well what it is, specifically how it is that I sin. And then there's a second part to his confession, and that is that he clearly recognized who he sinned against. Notice the very next verse in verse 4. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You know, it's an interesting phrase when he says, against you and you alone have I sinned. I mean, did he forget about what happened between he and Bathsheba? Did he forget about the fact of what happened with him in murdering her husband? Was that murdering her husband, is that not sinning against him? Here's his point. His point is not that there was not some level of sin against other people. His point is, is that all sin, the reason that it's serious, is not because I sinned against you, but because all sin is directed in rebellion towards a holy God. And that's why all sin is infinitely, infinitely serious. That's why there is no such thing as a little right, white law, lie. That's not why there are small sins and big sin. Every sin is as big as you can possibly imagine it because it is directed towards an infinitely great and holy God. And so he recognizes that it was against God that he sinned. And that's why even in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13, in that particular verse, what we find is as soon as they find out that they were sinful, he, that he has sinned and he, he, he became aware of his sinfulness, he says, I have sinned against God. So in his confession, we see two things, and we also see a third. He also clearly recognized his sin problem. He recognized his sin problem. Now notice what he says in verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So now he's really getting at the core of the basis. What he's saying at the core of the problem, he says, my sin and the seriousness of my sin is not simply because I have sinned individual sins against you, right? It's not simply because I, 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 I did a couple sins. My problem is at the very core of who I am, I'm sinful. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because at my core, I'm a sinner. When I was first created and first conceived in my mother's womb, right there, I inherited a sin nature. I am in big, I have a big problem, is what he's saying. And then notice this, the latter part of verse 5, or verse 6, he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. You know what he's saying? The other problem is not only because my heart is fully and completely contaminated with sin, he says, but the problem with me as well is what you require. And he says, you don't just require for me to go through the motions each and every day. It's not just about what I'm not doing. And it's not just about what I'm doing. He says, it's about the intent of your heart of why you're doing it or why you're not doing it. And think about that for a minute. There are a lot of times I do something and I do it and say, well, this is for the glory of God. But my heart's not right in it. Are you with me? It's kind of like the little child that was sitting on the bus seat, and the mom says, sit down, no, sit down, no, sit down. And finally, he sits down, crosses his arms, puts a scowl on his face, and says, I might be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside, right? And so what he understands, he says, listen, God is not just calling me just to do right things. He's calling me to do that which is right, but from a pure heart. Now he's sitting there going, God, I confess, I don't have a little problem. I have a huge problem, right? And so here we see is a prayer of, of, um, is a prayer of confession. And then notice the very next line. We see that it's also a prayer of restoration, a prayer of restoration. Now, here's, he's going to ask God what he wants him to do for him. 
And there's five different things that we see in the text. First of all, he asked in verse 7 that God would restore his purity. Look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop. Now, hyssop is a little bush that they would use in cleansing ceremonies to dip in water and to be able to dip in blood and to cover things. It was a cleansing ceremony. So he says, let, he says purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And so, in essence, what he's saying is, God, have you ever felt this before? God, I'm filthy. God, I'm filthy. Make me clean again. Make me clean again. The second thing they ask for is this. First is to restore his purity. Second is to restore his joy. Look at the next, next, next verse in verse 8. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Listen, there is no worse place to be underneath the discipline of God. It's impossible to be happy. Are you with me? It's impossible to experience joy. And so what they say is, he says, God, in this I'm repenting, and now, God, I'm sad, make me glad. God, I'm sad, make me glad. Now in verse 9, this is what he, next thing he requests is this, is to restore his innocence. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. In essence, he's simply saying, God, I'm guilty, make me innocent. Make me innocent again. It's horrible to feel that guilt of sin on your life and it's awful place to be. But how wonderful it is to feel that cleansing of innocence once again when God comes over you and takes your sin away. And we see in, in, in verse 10, we see the fourth thing he requests is to restore to him a pure heart. Excuse me, restore to him a heart, his heart. In verse 10 it says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a, a right spirit within me. That word create is such a descriptive word because it's used in the beginning of Genesis when it says that God created the universe ex nihilo. That means out of nothing he created it. He says the same exact thing here. He goes, my heart is so wicked and so wrong. Don't even fix the old one. Don't even refurbish it. Just give me a whole new miraculous heart is what he asked God for. So what is he saying? He's saying, God, I'm broken. Make me whole. Make me whole. And finally, the fifth thing he requests is this. He says, restore, he's asked God to restore his fellowship with God once again in verse 11. He says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Listen, listen for a second. If you're like me, I have experienced the presence of God. I have experienced the fellowship of God and I have experienced the non-fellowship of God and the fellowship of God is far greater. It is far greater. And so he knows that he is not in fellowship with God, and he wants that to be restored once again. Do you feel that in your heart? Are you sensing, are you being able to identify with him? Are you able to identify that in the times that you have been within your sin, that you have felt, you have felt filthy and sad and guilty and broken and lonely, and just called out for him, God, just fix me. Just fix me. Just clean me up. Just make me glad. Just make me innocent. Make me whole. And make me welcome with you again. This is the heart of true conversion and the heart of a repentant believer that we see here. Now, I want to show you something just for a minute in the text. In verse 12, and this is the only way for me to understand this, is, is this is Mike's kind of interpretation of this. I think, I don't want to say that. I think it's really what the text is saying. I think in verse 12, he says, restore to me the joy of your, sal your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What he's doing here is he's summing up everything that he said. He's just summing up everything that he's asked for. It's kind of like this, and I have a bad habit of this, of going on and talking with somebody about a lot of stuff. Then I'm like, listen, this is really what I'm, this is the bottom line. This is really what I mean, right? And I even have people say that. 
We'll talk for a little while, and they'll go, listen, dude, get to the point. What's the bottom line? Well, here he's getting to the point. And his point is this. This is what he asked for, two things. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, before we unpack that, I want to go down one more verse. Because in this verse is where we come to the fourth part of his prayer, the fourth element of his prayer. And the fourth element of his prayer is a prayer of resolution. And when I say a prayer of resolution, it means, hey, God, if you will do this, then I will do this. This is what I'm, this is what I'm making a commitment to do for you, all right? And so before he does that, what, what does he ask? He says in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Now, if you've been with us in our series, and I know some haven't, but just hang in there with me for a minute. What we see in verse 12 and 13 is really what we've been talking about the entire month. What we've been talking about is this. Do you remember last week we talked about God's provision? That God gives us more than we need, and he blesses us spiritually and monetarily so that we can propagate the gospel throughout the whole world to give it to those who don't have it. You guys remember that? You with me? And he says, what we see is we see, and I said, in that case, you can literally get up. If that's your intent of your heart, and that's what you're going to do with those riches, then get up and say, God bless me. God bless me. Because I'm not going to be materialistic, but I want you to bless me so I can be a blessing to other people. And that's a great prayer to be able to do. We saw that in Psalm 67. He says, and what we see is we see that request here in verse 12. When he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. But then in the verse 13, we see the part of his plan. That if God gives him this, he's going to take part in God's plan. The first part of 13, what does it say? Then I will teach transgressors your ways. They don't know your ways, God. But if you bless me in this way, I will pass that blessing onto other people. But then we see the purpose. Do you see the purpose, the very next line? Some of you aren't looking at the word of God. I, I could be lying to you, and you wouldn't know it, all right? And so the next verse, what, what, what does he say? And he says, and sinners will return to you. There's the purpose, the purpose, the plan, and the provision. You guys got all that? So there we see it. And so what he recognizes is that he, as a believer, as somebody who has been born again, who's someone who's been saved, if you will. Those are New Testament terms that we're using and applying for the Old Testament. But if this, he understands that he has an undeniable obligation to teach transgressors God's ways. What does that mean? That he knows that God has commanded him to teach the gospel to those who do not have it. He recognizes it's his responsibility. Now, what's interesting about that is this. You and I, every person who sits in here today, who is a professing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, is under the same undeniable obligation to share the gospel with our own lips to other people who do not know it. You got that? Now listen, not all of us are called to be preachers in the full, full-time capacity. Not all of us are called to be missionaries in a full-time capacity. And all of you said amen by relief, you know, re- just, huh, right? You're, you're glad that that's not the case. We know that. But every single purpose person who has been born again is called by God to be a disciple maker. Every person in this place, if you are saved, has been called to make disciples. And it begins by opening our mouths to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people. Here's the problem. Most believers in the American church don't do it. We just don't do it. God has given us the riches of his way, of his glory, of how he can be known through the person of Jesus Christ, and we're just sitting on it, man. We're not sharing it. 
In fact, there are so many who literally been saved for 10, 20, and 30 years, and probably on their left hand or their right hand, they could count how many times they've actually been intentional about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with another person. When we were in Ethiopia, and we, we, I praise God that God gave us the opportunity to go, Dan and I, and that you guys would send us on behalf to represent this church. And we, when we were there in Ethiopia, and we began to see God just work in an incredible way amongst these Muslim people. And I don't know about you, but my thought is, well, dude, I no way the Muslims have come to faith in Christ. Let's go to someone easier, right? Uh, let's go to someone that doesn't have a religion. But if you do that, guess what? You'll never find anybody because everybody has some type of religion and thought process of how they believe they can be made right before God. And so when we got there, I'm like, brother, this is incredible. I said, how in the world, how do you explain all of these people coming to faith in Jesus Christ? And so I sat down, I remember this, Dan and I, we sat him down in his living room and I had this little notebook. I'm like, give it to me, bro. In your opinion, why is it that so many people and Muslims are coming to faith in Jesus Christ? And I was waiting for some kind of meat, some kind of secret magic bullet, you know what I mean? Some kind of secret pill. And he says to me, he goes, well, I'll tell you, but I'm not really sure it's exactly what you're looking for. And I said, well, what is it? And he says, here's what happens. When, when the Harage that when the Muslims here come to faith in Jesus Christ, they hear the gospel, they immediately go out and share the gospel. Really? Yes. And he goes, Mike, I'm not saying that God's not doing a unique work amongst the people. He says, but the reason that people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ is because the people are taking part in God's plan. They're propagating the gospel of Jesus Christ and their witnesses to Jesus Christ. He goes, the majority, he goes, my experience in the States, and maybe it's changed. He goes, I pray that it has. He goes, most Christians within the American walls of a church do not, on a regular, purposeful position, share their faith with anybody. They'll read, they'll study, they'll argue theology, they'll argue everything else. But when it comes to them actually opening up their mouths and sharing the gospel, the majority of them just do not do it. Now, listen. I'm not talking about inviting somebody to church doesn't count. That's great, just doesn't count. I'm not talking about sitting there and talking about some book that you just read and just kind of sharing some things and bebopping around or saying, hey, God is good or putting a bumper sticker saying God is my co-pilot on the, backs, uh, on the uh, back of your bumper. And if you have that and you want to join the church, you got to take it off before you join. join. That's just stupid, all right? All right? And the re- you see, I say stuff like that, and that's what I, afterwards I feel so bad that I said that. I, I, forgive me, I shouldn't have said that. But God shouldn't be our co-pilot. God should be driving and directing everything, amen? And so what we find is this, is that so many of us are just not sharing the gospel. But this is what he said. He goes, Mike, there's a second aspect of that, though. He goes, there are some that share the gospel. He goes, but they only share it within their oikos. And what he means by that is only in their immediate sphere of influence. He says they only share it with people who they really kind of love, like maybe a, a, a family member or maybe a church member or maybe a neighbor. And he goes, and what they do is they pile seeds up on them. I said, what do you mean pile seeds up on them? And he goes, well, one of the first things we teach the new believers is the parable of the sower and the seed. And he goes, you know, the, the sower is ultimately Jesus in the parable, but it's, it's us, it's each one of us who are co-laborers with Jesus who go, and the seed is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he goes, and they're giving us a picture of how we're supposed to sow the gospel. He says, what they do is they reach into that bag, the sower, and then he takes that seed and he spreads it in as far and as thin as he possibly can on the broadest uh, amount of areas he possibly can because he knows not all of that soil is going to be good soil. So they don't pile it up. They just spread it wide because they know some of it's going to fall on good soil, and so they want to get it there. And he goes, so Mike, this is what they do. They go, 
that it goes, our folks, when they go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they says, when they begin to share it with somebody, if they're cold to the gospel, they just brush off the dust of the bottom of their feet and they go to the very next person. And he goes, because they are convinced that God is working in somebody's life, all they have to do is find them. He goes, there's soft soil there, good soil, and they're going to find who that person is. He goes, most believers, most believers today in Christian churches, you know what they do? They find one or two persons, and they share the gospel for the next 20 years of their life, and they never go beyond that. Every gospel presentation they make is just keep heaping more and more and more seed up on top of them. And he goes, you know what? There's nothing wrong with you continually being a witness to somebody in your family or somebody that you love, a husband, a wife, a family member, a child, whoever it is. He goes, but you know what? God hasn't called us to heap up seed. He's called us to scatter that seed so that some would fall upon the good soil. And so what we find is this is why in the world, guys, then do we not? Listen, I believe that the reason that God has not taken us home is because he wants to use you and me for the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did y'all hear that? He wants you and I to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And let me tell you something. It's very easy for us to be able to say, well, you know what? It's just not fair that people to the ends of the earth do not hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and then they go to hell because they never had the opportunity to hear it. First of all, it's not really fair that anybody goes to heaven. Can we just make sure we understand that? And I understand very clearly, and I want to say this with a very confident heart, just a very tender heart towards you. When you sit there, be very, very careful. Because when you say that's not fair and that's not right, you begun to become a judge of God, and now you're in trouble. God has stated clearly, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God alone. You cannot be saved apart from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for you and I, how are we the clay, to turn to the potter and say, I don't like your plan when we are corrupt and wicked. And talk to an all good God who has supplied every good thing to us. And God turns to us and said, I've supplied all things to you. I've given you in the way in the son of Jesus Christ. I've given you my word to tell you the way. I've given you the Holy Spirit to empower you. I've given you the provision to give it all. And so you're gonna sit here and you're gonna point a finger at me and tell me I'm not fair? Are you kidding me? incredible to me he says i'm giving you everything you need you go now you go now open your mouth it's the word of god it's the gospel open your mouth and we all sit back i just don't believe that i just don't believe that why is it that we're so quiet why is it that we don't share why is it that we don't take part in it reading a book here recently, and I think it's a phenomenal book, and I'm sorry that I got so loud there, it kind of freaked myself out, to be honest with you. <laughs> so we'll take that back, but here's, in, in a book recently by the brokenhearted evangelist, by a man by the name of Jeremy Walker, this is, this is what he said. He said, listen, there are two reasons, primary reasons why people don't share their faith. Number one, he, he ultimately says, he says, is because we have doubts, and the second thing is because we make, uh, we, we have fears. And in his doubts, he kind of explains, he says, this is why people say that they don't share their faith. He says, some claim to be lacking a calling. In other words, they say, well, it's the preacher or the full-time missionary's job. They're the ones uh, that God has called to share their faith. Listen, the only calling a person needs to share their faith and open up their mouth and share the gospel is the call to salvation. That's it. If you've been called to be saved, then guess what? You've received the call to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number two, some, some claim a lack of education. Now listen, I want to be very careful here. I think education is fantastic. 
But if a person is not careful, that, that education can really begin to, to become a sore spot for them in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guys think that they have to learn all the argumentations and all of church history, and they have to learn all about all the other religions and all the argumentations and debate to be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's just foolishness. People who are lost don't know all those arguments for the most part. You can't, listen, how clear is this? Listen, I want to sit down with you and talk to you and begin, share the good news of Jesus Christ to you, how you can be redeemed to be made right through the propitiation of Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross and his substitutionary atonement for you. But we have to begin arguing the ontological and epistemological arguments of the existence of God first. Boy, that's a great witness, is it not? And what have you done? The person sitting there going, you are crazy. You are crazy. Let me tell you, just very shivering. Listen, this is all the education that you need. Well, the education you need is to be saved. And what you need to do is just walk, just go up and share with somebody what Jesus did for you. Here it is, ready? Here it is. Very difficult. I shared this with my kids the other day. Here it is, you ready? I used to think that I was good. But in reading the word and hearing the word, the Holy Spirit convicted me and showed me that there is nothing good about me. And I'm deserving of the judgment of God. Number one, write this down, by the way. All right? Number two. Here's the second thing, is that through the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, he's revealed to me that Jesus is the only answer to my sin problem. He's the only way for me to be made right before God. The only way. Number three, I repented and I turned from my sin and placed my faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Number four, here it is. God justified me, he declared me righteous, and guess what? He adopted me as a child of God. Number five, he is continuing a sanctifying process. That means he changed me then, but he's continuing to change me. You look at me now, and I know that I don't look great, but I am a work in progress, and every day I'm becoming and looking more like Jesus Christ every single day. I've got a long way to go, but I'm becoming more and more like him. Man, that's a gospel witness. Then turn to him and say, would you like Jesus to do the same for you? Guys, that's about it right there. You can develop that now and talk more about it, but that's as simple as it can be. We also see some that would, would claim a lack of eloquence. Uh, this, is, this is the whole Moses thing. Hey, there's just better people that can word things much better than I can. Uh, I, I, can't, I, I don't have the gift of gab, uh, you know, in, in that sort of thing. Here's the idea. Uh, it's just get out, man, and just use those simplistic words. Get out there and share the gospel. Uh, here's another one. Uh, some claim a lack of temperament. In other words, they're like, listen, I know some people, they just got the perfect personality for sharing the gospel because they're extroverts. Man, they just don't meet a stranger. They just can talk to anybody. Like, like Brother Jimmy. Jimmy. Brother Jimmy has never, ever met a stranger, right? I mean, you could see him, and Brother Jimmy could talk to anybody about anything. I'm intimidated when I'm watching him. I mean, I'm like, okay, f- teach me, okay? And he's just sitting there, and he can engage people. I am naturally an introvert. I'm just kind of like a to-myself Mike kind of guy, right? Neighbors are sitting there, hey, how's it going? Y'all doing all right? And I'm nervous about, about entering into the conversation with them, right? And so I, I could, and you could sit there and go, go, you know what? Well, Brother Jimmy is just more gifted than you are. has nothing to do with being effective in presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Finally, there's a claim for money. People say, look, in order to reach people, you have to make money. Now, let me explain that. That is true for those in the nations. That is true to be able to send people, to be able to support them, to be able to get people in the mission field and get the gospel there. It costs money to get them there. But let me tell you something. The cheapest place it is for us to share the gospel is right where we live. It costs you nothing. That's why, listen, people sit there and go, when are we going to have a big event? When are we going to have a big event? Well, we'll just pile everybody in. 
Wouldn't that be just great? We'll just have a beast feast, and we'll have a that feast, and we'll have a monkey feast, and we'll have a whatever, and banana bread eating contest, and we'll have everything. Then we'll get them together. Then we'll get that guy, you know, who can really draw the net, the gift of the, the net drawler, and we'll get him in, and we'll pay him $2,000 to come in and do what we could have done for free. To share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then we'll take all that other money, and we'll quit making excuses, and we'll send people on the mission field where there is no gospel presentation and gospel witness. Does that make sense? And so you don't have to have any money. Now, here's the thing. If you don't, what you need to understand is you don't need any of those things to be effective witness for Jesus Christ. But then what do you need? And I think that this is, where, this is what we find right here in this particular text. What you need, and hear me very clearly, and I'll pack it for you, you need passion. You need passion. And you need passion in two specific ways, and this is how I'm defining that. First of all, you need a passion for what God has done. Now we get back to verse 12. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Now, when I was leading our kids and and I was talking with my son the other night and trying to disciple him through some things, uh, we sat down and I told him, I said, uh, I said, son, I said, you need to understand something. That when you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you feel and, and, and you know that God has saved you and the reality of that illuminates your mind and illuminates your heart, I'm telling you right now, son, that is the greatest experience that you will have this side of heaven. It's the greatest experience you'll have this side of heaven. The joy that you experience when you know that your sins, your multiple, uh, innumerable, tons, grandiose number of sins, a plethora of sins that are piled on before you at that particular moment in time are completely washed away and you're underneath none of the guilt and shame of that sin anymore. When the wrath of God that has been storing up against you righteously and was penting up and being held back by God's long suffering towards you has completely been whisked away and it was whisked away on the cross, therefore there is no condemnation on you anymore. The, you, and then when that judgment is now replaced by the love and the acceptance of God, that you are no longer an enemy of God, but now you are an adopted child of God. Folks, when those truths resonate in your heart and the reality of that comes, it that's the best thing you can ever experience. And I disagree with the old Milwaukee commercials where they got a bunch of men all sitting around drinking beer and, and burping and sitting there and roasting whatever it is on the fire and they say it just doesn't get any better than this. Apparently, they've never been saved. It just doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't, not this side of heaven. And so the idea here is this, is that David comes to this particular point and he experienced that. Now he doesn't have that joy. And so you know what he's calling for? God, give it to me again. God, I want to experience that again. I want the joy of my salvation. Would you give it to me once again? Maybe you're sitting here today and you said, Brother Mike, that's not been a reality to me. When I was a little kid, I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. I was baptized. But I never really had some kind of experience where I was just blown away by the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God inside of my life. And I've been a Christian all these years. What I would say, and I want to say this very carefully, look and analyze to see if you're truly in the faith. Look to see if you're truly been born again. I'm not questioning your salvation. I'm asking you to question it to see if you've truly been born again. There are some who are sitting here, and this is where they are this morning. Here's where they are. They are they're at the place in their life where they sit there and go, listen, Mike, I know exactly what you're talking about. I've experienced that before. I know that before. But I haven't experienced that joy in a long time. And I guarantee as we begin to talk about David, you know what happened? 
For some of you, the Holy Spirit began to illuminate in your own life. There was unconfessed sin there and sin that you're unwilling to relent and to give to God. And what God is saying is you will never enjoy my fellowship in that sweet way as long as you keep holding on to that sin. There's probably a third category, and I think that there's some people who are sitting here as well. And what they're saying is, well, Brother Mike, the best that I know how, the best that I know how inside my life, I'm walking right with God. I know there, should be, there could be some unconfessed sin. I'm just not aware of it. I'm trying to serve God. I'm trying to lead my family. I'm trying to live and be a witness of God. But the truth is, I just don't have those great affections. I want those great affections. Here's, here's what I'd say for you. I'd simply say this. You need to meditate on the truths of the gospel. We don't do this enough. Meditate on the truths of the gospel. You say, what do you mean by that? I don't mean, um, um, empty the mind. Look, I don't need to empty the mind. My, my mind's empty enough, right? What I need to do is, you need to do is fill our minds with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the reality of it. Sit back and begin to pursue and to begin to reflect. Reflect on this. Meditate on the depth of your sinful condition when Christ first saved you. Meditate on the magnitude of God's forgiveness of your willful rebellion against him. Spend time meditating on the breadth of God's love. Meditate on the heights of God's grace that he showed you in his son's sacrifice on the cross. Think on these things. Listen, when I preach these things weekly and preach the gospel, it is not for you to sit there and go, preach me something I don't know. It's to stir up the godly affections in you. And the godly affections in me for the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we see this is, is when you and I are stirred up in this way by the truths of what God does, that's what makes us an effective witness is our passion for what Jesus Christ has done for us. Let me give you this very, very quickly. There's a man who came to our church. He's still there. Uh, he, he, fortunately, he's still here. Uh, he began to come, and I saw him one night uh, at, after one of our classes, and I just began to talk with him, and very clearly it became the fact that he uh, was not a born-again believer. I even asked him, are you saved? He goes, no. I'm like, okay, why are you at systematic theology then, right? Uh, a lot of the saved ones are not here, but you're here and you're not saved. What's going on with this? He goes, well, he goes, I started coming a couple months ago because we have kids. I want to be a good dad. And I figured the Judeo-Christian way is probably the best way to raise kids. And I said, but so you started coming and you're still coming? What kept you coming? And he says, well, he goes, when I first came, he goes, it's not that I believe anything that's being said. He goes, but what kept me coming was the fact that I really truly believed you believed what it was that you were saying. Folks, one of the greatest impacts of you and I, listen to me, being you and I being an effective witness for Jesus Christ is for you to be passionate about what Jesus Christ did for us. There's a second part, and that is a passion for what God is doing. And I'll, I'll go through this very, very quickly. It's, it's, it, it's this. What, what he says next is, notice, he says, and uphold me with a willing spirit. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, what he's doing is this. In, the, in essence, he's saying, God, I want you to sustain me and to hold me in a right relationship with you. I don't want to slip back and go back into that pit of despair anymore. I want to be righteous. I want to live a holy life. In essence, what he is saying, again, uh, this is what one commentator said. He says, this man wants to be as free from sin in his deeds as he is in his record which has been blotted clean from all trace of iniquity. In other words, he says, I've been declared righteous. I want to be righteous in my everyday life. I want to look more like him. I want to be holy as he is holy. 
And so what he's, he's telling us is the passionate pursuit of godliness and holiness is what makes us an effective minister of the gospel. It's not enough for us to sit back and for us to sin and just to wallow in our despair of sinfulness. He didn't do that. And he also didn't just sit there and say, hey, listen, salvation is enough for me. I could care less if I really grow in God. That's not the voice of a person who's saved. He sits there and says, I'm gonna do everything I can to be like God, and he must sustain me in order for that to be able to happen. So it's those two things that come together a passion for what God has done and a passion for what God is doing that allows you and I to truly be effective. Now, a couple minutes ago, I said that doubts often keep us from thinking that we're effective, but I also said that oftentimes we have fears. Let me read some of these statements that we often say that demonstrate our fears. Sometimes we will say this while we're not sharing our faith. We'll say, well, when things change a little bit, then I'll begin. Something in my life's got to change. I'm really busy right now. I've got a lot of stuff going on. I've got a lot of problems. When that changes, when I finally reach that magical point in my life, then that will be the time that I'll begin to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You with me? All right. Now, here's the second thing. This is not, the second thing we'll say is this is not the right environment. This is not the right place. These are not the right circumstances. Number three, I'll wait until they notice something different about me and ask me about it. I'll wait, number four, I'll wait until I have an opportunity that won't have any impact on my career. I'll wait until I have an opportunity with someone where I am not worried about the fallout for the relationship. Number six, I'll wait until there is no risk of me sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So all of those fears that we ultimately end up having. So what do we do? Listen, we've got to deny those fears. If you wait until all those fears are gone, you will never share your faith with Jesus Christ. Listen to what Candlish said, and I'm going to close with two things very quickly here. He says, then open your own lips at once, now, this very day. Wait not for any sign or any impulse or favorable opportunity or any pressing call. He says, begin now. Let some friend or, or neighbor hear you before the sun goes down, speaking a word in season, a word of admonition, a word of comfort, telling something that what the Lord is doing in your soul and of his willingness to do the same for theirs. I call you to prove the earnestness of your repentance and strengthen your re resolution to go and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to share this. Guys, the gospel will not go where we do not take it. Are you with me? It will not go where we do not take it. We've got to be serious about this in our lives. But let me share this one last thing with you. Because I have, I have felt literally from last month to this month, last month it seemed like there was a big buzz in our church. And I don't think it was because people were drinking. I, I think that it was an actual general buzz. There was an excitement. There were people that were sitting back, and they were just kind of like, hey, man, God's working in my life. I'm becoming the man that God wants me to be, and that's awesome. Every year, this is what I, what I feel, and I might be wrong with this. We get to missions month, and it's kind of like somebody took a Hoover vacuum, stuck it into the church, sucked the Holy Spirit right out of it, and everyone's like, we will endure this month. We'll just get through it. We'll just get through it. If other people can die for their faith, we can die by listening to this. <laughs> listening to God's purpose and God's mission and everything else. And here's the thing is, I jest with that, but I will tell you, the, the true spiritual condition, mark my words, the true spiritual condition of this church will be determined and is determined on how we respond to this series. 
this series. The glory of God, the propagation of Jesus Christ, you and I using our provisions to propagate the gospel, opening our mouths to share the gospel of other people. And see, so a lot of people, hey, I even got this, and, and listen, I'm not talking about you, but this is what a lot of people said. Well, Brother Mike, we could have used another, another month on manhood, or we could have used another month on womanhood, or we could have used another month on childhood, or we could have, whatever hood, you know, whatever it is, whatever hood, Robin Hood, whatever it is, we, we could have this, and we need, we, need another, we need another month on it and everything. And this is what I would say. I'd say the reason that you want me to share on those things is because your life is a mess. Your life is a mess. And my heart goes out to you in that. Your heart is a mess. But let me tell you something. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, he says the reason your life is in a mess is because you fail to take the Great Commission seriously and speak the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people. Here's what he says. I believe that the not seeking to win souls brings many spiritual maladies upon Christian men. He says, God in discipline often brings sorrow upon his own people because of their unholy silence as to gracious things. I believe he's exactly right. If God says, go into all the world and begin with your next door neighbor and your family of propagating the gospel, and we in rebellion say no, how can God not discipline his children? How can he not do the very thing, discipline us, because we fail to do the very thing why he's allowing us to continue to exist on this planet? Listen to me. Go now, today, open your mouth. It may be a disaster in your eyes. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tell somebody what you did. Do you understand? That's what we have to get out and speak is the message of Jesus Christ. Without it, we cannot be saved. Jesus, we come to you and we thank you and we praise you. We thank you for this morning. God, I have gone long, as usual. No reason to ask for forgiveness over it. But God, rather we just come right now and I just pray that you will use it. God, I pray that people will just come from all over and just sit there and just say, God, I need to share the gospel. I repent Restore to me the joy of my salvation. God, uphold me. Live this life. I want to be an effective witness for Jesus Christ. But all of that is great. But we've got to open our minds. God, will we have people seeking that today? There are some that need to come, and we preach the gospel this morning. Will they come and repent and be right before Jesus? In your precious name we pray. Amen. Would you stand, and would you respond? Would you respond to the preaching of God's word today? I'll be down here if you want to pray. The altar is open for you. You come, all right?